Israel is part of the solution to the major problems of the 21st century. Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. As the sun set in Israel today, the somber atmosphere of Yom Hazikaron, Memorial Day for Israel's fallen soldiers and victims of terror, faded away, replaced with jubilation. Yom Ha'atzma'ut. Israel's 70th Independence Day was finally here. Today, to mark this historic moment in Jewish history, 70 years since the rebirth of Jewish sovereignty in our ancestral homeland, we'll bring you three perspectives on what this milestone means. We'll hear from one of Israel's leading politicians, from a preeminent historian, and from a devoted advocate. And we'll ask each of them about their vision for the future of Israel. First up, joining us from Israel, is member of Knesset Tsipi Livni, a former foreign minister and justice minister, among other critically important positions in Israel's government, and the first woman to serve as vice prime minister. Today, she leads the Hatznua party, part of the center-left Zionist Union. From 2006 through 2009, as she served as foreign minister, she steered the Israeli side of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Raised in a prominent right-wing family, the daughter of a Likud member of Knesset, Livni has come to be known as one of the strongest proponents of the two-state solution, and her experience in government gives her intimate insight into where Israel is today and where its future could lead. Minister Livni, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for being there for us. Your parents were both members of the Irgun, the revisionist Zionist militia that fought the British and helped create the state of Israel. They were famously the first couple to marry in the Jewish state. When your mother lived through the Arab riots in 1929, when your father was imprisoned for his Zionism by the British in Akko in 1944, do you think they could have ever dreamed that Israel would be born, much less celebrate its 70th birthday? Yes, I think so, because they were <laughs> Zionists. Uh, they believed in what they did. Uh, both of them were imprisoned, and they uh, lived through the establishment of the State of Israel. They lived uh, in uh, Six Days War. They saw uh, their dream comes true, and they uh, lived through Yom Kippur War. And they saw, they celebrated the years of independence, and they believed that uh, when they died, uh, they were quite hopeful and optimistic for the future. Your politics are different from your parents, of course, since this is a different political moment than the one they lived in, and it calls for different politics. Uh, what does this historical moment demand politically? What must Israel's political leadership do to guarantee Israel reaches many more milestones like this one? I believe that even though the perception is that um, my politics is different than my parents, I believe that I represent the values that I was educated upon. 
because my parents believed in greater Israel, in the rights of the Jewish people on the entire land, and I do believe that uh, the Jewish people has rights on uh, the entire land of Israel between Jordan River, Mediterranean Sea, but yet uh, they believed also in equality, in democracy, in uh, rights for minorities, and so for them and for me, the choice for the future of the state of Israel after 67 is between being one state uh, and giving equal rights to all, including all the millions of Palestinians that are living here, or dividing the land, uh, which is quite a painful decision, but yet securing Israel as a Jewish democratic state. So in choosing between the entire land or the values and the nature of the state of Israel as a Jewish democratic state, my choice is uh, the Jewish democratic state. And my mother was alive when I made this decision. And for many years, I hope that she uh, didn't listen to what I say publicly. But then one day she said to me, uh, listen, I hear you. It hurts me. But I see young people living for America. And we didn't fight to create a state just for us, the old guys, to live in. So we made our decision for, for you. Uh, you can make your decisions for uh, next generation, for my grandsons. And therefore, I believe that my politics, my views, my vision for the future state of Israel, uh, for the future of the state of Israel, is basically based upon their values. Now, as a Jew living in the diaspora or as a foreigner with no connection to Israel, it's too easy to focus on the negatives, to focus on the fact that dream that you spoke of has, has, not, um, has not yet been fully achieved. The fact that for half a century, Israel has ruled over the West Bank, for example. Uh, but today is a day to celebrate. Israel has flaws, certainly, like every country, but it has been a force for good in the world. How did you make that case as foreign minister? How do you continue to make that case today? You know, um, I learned a lot from Arik Sharon as a prime minister, and he used to tell a story about him as a child working in the field with his uh, father. And, you know, it's Israel, it's hot, he was a young boy, and when he was tired, wanted to go home, and wanted to go home, my father used to say, don't look forward, there's a lot uh, of job to be done, but look backwards at what we already achieved. So this is a day really to look backward, and Israel really is a great miracle in the Middle East. I mean, uh, such a tiny place in terms of land, with great minds, startup nation, uh, we uh, integrated and absorbed millions of Jews who came from all over the world to one society, uh, wonderful society, and uh, this is something that I'm very proud of. And I believe that Israel is a strong state, not only in terms of its army, which is really a very strong army, uh, but also in terms of values. But uh, today what I say to Israel is, is, yes, this is what we achieved, but we need to keep uh, and preserve these values. And in order to keep and preserve them, we need also make a tough and bold decision that we didn't, uh, we didn't make since uh, or in the last 50 years. Uh, 
that's it. A lot of to be, to be proud of, but also decisions to make for the future. You mentioned the strength of Israel's military. You mentioned looking backward. If, if we look backward to the history of Israel, so much of it has been defined by the threats that Israel has faced through the years. Does Israel face any existential threats today? Israel uh, is facing threats, of course. But any, any existential threats, any threats that really threaten its, its survival as a country? I never use the word existential when it comes to the state of Israel. I speak about strategic threats, about threats, but not existential threats. Israel is a sovereign, independent, strong state, and we can and should defend ourselves. But yet, when we look at the region, we live in a tough neighborhood. Uh, we have Iran that expresses its desire to wipe Israel off the map, trying to achieve a nuclear weapon to do so. Uh, now it is has uh, it has a basis in Syria, quite on the Israeli border, rearming uh, Hezbollah, a terrorist organization in Lebanon. Uh, so yes, it is a threat, of course, and we have Hamas in Gaza controlling Gaza, using terror against Israel. So. The Middle East is going is not going to turn into you know this night nice quiet uh, neighborhood, uh, and we are not going to live happily ever after the next day. But yet, I believe that there are also some opportunities here that we can change our relations with uh, the Muslim and uh, Sunni Arab states. They want to have Israel as part of the alliance against their threat. They see Iran as their threat as well. And therefore, I tend not to look at uh, the future just through the lenses of, of threats, but also trying to find opportunities. Not in a naive manner, but there are also opportunities here. And I believe that in, we need to save them. Turning inward for a moment, Minister Livni, there, there are so many divides today in Israel. Uh, you know, there's a, a huge gap between the political right and the left? Uh, has there ever been a bigger gap between the religious and the secular? And the hole between Israelis and Palestinians is so big that hopes for a two-state solution, one that you have crusaded for for decades now, uh, have gotten very dim. Uh, you, you are a negotiator, a politician, a diplomat. What can be done to bridge these gaps, to turn rivals and enemies into partners as we look forward? I believe that the first thing to do is instead of thinking what the Palestinian wants, what the Arab wants, what the world wants from us, we should speak about us and about our vision. Uh, being a small state surrounded by enemies, uh, this is not a vision. This, is, this can be reality that we need to change. But I believe that first and foremost, Israel and us, the Israeli society, need to have a shared vision. And it is true that we now uh, have uh, the Israeli society and politics is being divided. And 70 years ago, the vision was uh, written uh, in the scroll of independence of the state of Israel. And what it said is that Israel is a Jewish democratic state, or in one sentence, Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people with equal rights to all its citizens. And I believe that we should go back to these words, to this vision, and readapt it uh, in our seven, in celebrating 70 years, and to keep this vision. And it is true that there are different trends in Israel, uh, some trends that we see all over the world. And my position as a politician and my role and uh, uh, responsibility is to keep both sides of the same equation. 
Jewish and democratic state, nation state of the uh, Jewish people with equal rights to all its citizens. Both sides of, of, of this equation, both sides of the vision are uh, very important for me and they should be balanced. We need to work in order to have these uh, values living in harmony, not in contradiction. And I'm not trying you know, to make life easier for me or prettier. We have this uh, ongoing internal conflict on, over this. It is not connected to the Palestinians. And the more we will decide what is our national GPS, uh, then uh, the understanding also in Israel will be that we need to separate ourselves from the Palestinians, hopefully to reach an agreement with them, uh, to have a border, uh, and that the idea of greater Israel contradicts the idea of Jewish democratic state. Certain circles, like the far left here in the U.S. and the not-so-far left in the U.K., have turned pretty strongly against Israel. Uh, at the same time, Prime Minister Netanyahu makes the case that Israel has actually never been less isolated, with breakthroughs in Israel-Indian relations, improving ties in Latin America, and maybe the first signs of a thaw in ties uh, with Arab countries. What's the future of Israeli diplomacy? I believe that the way to have the support is to speak openly, truthfully, and to share what Israel really is. Uh, I believe that Israel is strong enough also to have some criticism, as long as the criticism is against or on uh, any government, Israeli government policy and not undermining the right of the Jewish people for a state or the right uh, of Israel to defend itself. And therefore, I would not preach the world, I would not attack the world, I would convince the world uh, that, yes, we are facing uh, differences in Israel politics, but we don't have hidden agenda. This is who we are. We would like to achieve peace and uh, while keeping Israel's uh, right to exist. This is what I did uh, while I was uh, uh, in office as uh, foreign minister. And I succeeded in having the support coming from different parts of, of the world and also with those that were well known as the criticizers of Israel, that I convinced them that those who support, even those who support the idea of two states for two peoples are not anti-Israeli, pro-Palestinian, as long as they would take in consideration uh, also our basic needs, like security, like uh, other issues that are uh, on the table. And by supporting their, these interests, they support also the interest uh, of peace. Just one final question, uh, one that we're asking all of our special guests today. What is your birthday wish for Israel? Well, we at AJC will be wishing for that and working for that right alongside you. Minister Livni, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Our next guest is author and historian Francine Klagsbrun. Over the course of her career, Klagsbrun has helped make headlines. She ushered in a new feminist era for conservative Judaism in America serving as part of the special commission of the Jewish Theological Seminary that paved the way for women to be ordained as rabbis in that liberal movement. She was also the first woman to carry a Torah to the Western Wall. In doing so, she helped to found the Women of the Wall, a group that crusades for greater equality at that holy place. Most recently, she wrote Lioness, a biography of the iconic Golda Meir, the first and thus far only woman to serve as Israel's Prime Minister.
Francine, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. When she visited Israel last month, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi declared that there is no greater political accomplishment in the 20th century than the establishment of the state of Israel. You are a historian. Can you parse that statement for us? Just how monumental, how momentous was the birth of the Jewish state? I think it was. I agree with her absolutely. I think it was one of the great events of the uh, 20th century. I think Zionism was one of the great successes uh, of the 20th century. I mean, here was a people living under the British mandate, being controlled by Britain, uh, having to fight with the Arabs who were rebelling all the time. Uh, and yet they managed to create a, an infrastructure as they were going along, uh, with somehow in their minds knowing some way they were going to be independent at one point. Uh, and the, when it happened, they were ready for it. That was also part of the miracle. It was not a, a nation taken by surprise. They were ready for it. Uh, and uh, it was a, a great, great uh, achievement for people, particularly, as we know, after the Holocaust. In his book, Der Judenstadt, Theodor Herzl, the founder of modern Zionism, wrote that we shall keep our priests within the confines of their temples in the same way as we shall keep our professional army within the confines of their barracks. That part of his vision has not yet come to pass. Too many Israelis are forced to follow the rules of a brand of Judaism that's different from their own by the ultra-Orthodox chief rabbinate. What is, what is your vision, Francine, for the future of religious pluralism in Israel? Oh, well, I would like to be very optimistic. You know, Golda Meir said she was an optimist all her life, that a, a Jew did not have the luxury of not being optimistic. So I, I would like to be optimistic and think that in another government, uh, the right wing will not be as powerful as it is today. I mean, it's part of uh, the government of today. It's part of uh, Mr. Netanyahu's leadership, where he's included the minority, the, the, the right wing, uh, as a very important force in his government. Uh, it's, I'm hoping that in the future, if there's a different kind of leader, uh, more moderate and uh, leader, uh, who would not do that. I think Israel is suffering, and its relationship with the United States and other countries is suffering because of this right-wing uh, uh, pull and slant of the government. And uh, I think it's it's a it's a been a negative for Israel and dangerous for Israel. Again, if I can go back to Golda Meir, uh, she would never. Uh, I mean, she had again she had religious minorities in her government because she they had to do that to form a government. But she would never have given the religious that kind of power, nor did anybody before her. And so I, I, I'm hopeful that it will swing back again. You know, things change all the time, and uh, I, I'm hopeful that it will change at some time point. Let's zoom out and look through the lens of history for a moment. None of the five French republics have lasted more than 70 years. More than 50 countries are younger than Israel at 70 today. When the United States turned 70, Texas had just become a state uh, and we were still 15 years away from the Civil War. Is there a certain life cycle of a country that we can project onto Israel as a rough map of what is to come? Well, that's tough. <laughs> that's <laughs> tough. But I certainly, I certainly think that 70 is still a young age, and it has many, many, many forever years uh, to go, because uh, this is a country that was very successful economically, 
uh, run, by, you know, a country that's filled with highly educated, uh, highly intelligent people. Uh, and as bad as I feel the right wing is, I don't think it's going to run the country into the ground. It's a democracy. This is a democracy. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of countries that fail were not democracies. And so I, I think there will be other elections and uh, other things that take place that will change the, the, the tenor of what we object to right now. And I think uh, the future is very bright for Israel. I mean, look how much, look where it's come from. It came from this poor, uh, struggling nation that people were really poverty-stricken. It was, it was, uh, uh, they were taking in hundreds and thousands of uh, immigrants, making housing for them, uh, not enough food, not enough uh, of clothing. And, and now look at it, it's a, a country where in some ways too much of a gap, like other capitalist countries between the rich and poor, but a country that's thriving in so many ways, thriving economically, thriving uh, in, in intellectually. It's, uh, it's uh, writers uh, are among the top literary figures of the world today. It's musicians, our top musicians. It's uh, actors. We had Wonder Woman, one of the great <laughs> actors of all times. So I think this country is a long way from reaching its peak. Uh, it, it's got, it, it'll keep going and growing. Francine, you're likely the world's expert on Golden Meir. I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> 700 pages ought to do it, right? I hope so. I think so. <laughs> and not to, 100, 100 more pages of notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I wanted to ask you, from the American Jewish perspective, Golda occupies a rarefied place in our perception of Israel. I bet that if you ask American Jews to name a former Israeli prime minister, even Americans in general, she'd be one of the first out of their mouths, as well-known as Ben-Gurion, Begin, and Rabin. We're proud to know, I think, that the, that the Jewish state was among the world's first to elect a female leader. But Israelis have a much less universally rosy picture of Golda Meir. Why are they down on her, and why do we love her so much? Okay, well, to, go, to, to answer the first part, why Israelis are down on her, it really began with the Yom Kippur War. Golda Meir was prime minister. Uh, the war was in 1973. Uh, Anwar Sadat, Egypt, Egypt and Syria's combined forces, took Israel somewhat by surprise. I mean, Israel was uh, expecting... You know, some war, but they didn't expect it at that moment. And the first days of the war were horrendous. They lost 2,600 people. They were really fighting for survival, it felt like, anyway. Uh, and Golda was prime minister. And when you're, you know, the head of a state, you get uh, blamed. The, the, the buck stops here, as it were. Although she had really listened to her generals who kept reassuring her that there was no chance of war, that it was not going to happen. So even though Israel won that war, uh, it left a very bad feeling to this day in the country because of uh, the, so many losses and because it left a sense of vulnerability that Israel did not have in its previous wars. It had won those wars easily, uh, more or less easily. I think uh, the war uh, was the beginning of anger at Golda uh, and her government, and then retroactively, People who had worked for her, for example, when they were young, and she was a tough woman, difficult to work for, used the war, used other things to go back and criticize her uh, uh, in, in ways that were really unfair, criticize her for being a, a very right-wing, which she was not. She was, after all, on the Labor Party. She was on the maybe the conservative. 
conservative end of the Labour Party, but the Labour Party is a left-leaning party. Uh, so she's been blamed for things that I uh, believe uh, have been unfair. And to be honest, some of that had to do with her being a woman. Uh, a lot of sexism involved here. Oh, great that she was the first woman leader, but she was a woman, and the men who worked for her were not happy working, uh, not particularly happy working for a woman, some of those men, and then criticized her very much when she died. So her reputation went down after the war and sort of stayed down. I believe it's coming up again now. I think my book and other uh, things that have been happening in Israel, uh, the um, archives put out a big book of documents connected with gold as they do with each prime minister. And the archivist very much also shows in those documents that uh, she did a lot of good things and she has been unfairly blamed for things. So I think uh, that she's going to be coming on the way up again. As far as America goes, for us in America, this is a woman who was here constantly. She went back and forth between Israel and America, raising money here, uh, speaking to American groups. She was one of us. She was. She had grown up in the United States. She lived here from the time she was eight years old until she was 23. Uh, and for us, it was a sense of one of one of ours made good. You know, this this uh, woman who achieved what she achieved, uh, and. And she won the hearts of American Jews because she could speak to American Jews and understand them in ways that other Israeli leaders were not able to. And, and so American Jews from her time till today really honor and revere her. By the way, 1969 was just a few years after India chose Indira Gandhi and a few years before the U.K. elected Margaret Thatcher. That's correct. Is there anything special about Israel that caused it to elect a female prime minister so early? Golda Meir, to be honest. Because there's never been another female prime minister in Israel. Uh, It it was true that Ben-Gurion had wanted a woman in his cabinet from the beginning, uh, wanted to show the world that this new country was an egalitarian country, uh, was a real democracy. So he, uh, in that sense, opened the way uh, for her. And she, with her own a strong character and ambition. She always denied she had any ambition, but she was very ambitious. Uh, you know, pushed her way, worked her way uh, up in, into uh, leadership roles from the very beginning. Uh, so I think it was a combination. It was a new country way back. It was, you know, even under British rule, it was this developing country. And as I say, looking for equality, looking to show the Middle East that the West was more, the Western ways were more equal. And I think that paved the way for her, but then I think it was her own really strong character that pushed her to where she was. Francine, my last question is one that we're asking all of our guests today. What is your birthday wish for Israel? Oh, I wish I wish uh, two things. One is that uh, the government go back, <laughs> or go ahead, move ahead, and become one that is not led by or, or so influenced by uh, the extreme right wing, a, a much more middle-of-the-road uh, government, which would, I think, make my second dream. 
make peace uh, with the Arab world. And I think, you know, in some ways Israel's on the cusp of being able to have peace uh, with the Arab world, the Arab countries uh, that are looking to have peace with Israel, Saudi Arabia and the others, uh, if Israel could solve its uh, Palestinian problem. And my dream is that, uh, and hope, and, and real expectation is that that problem will be solved and that there will be a two-state solution uh, to that issue. Francine, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, really. Joining us in the studio is our final guest, AJC CEO David Harris. Described by the late Israeli President Shimon Peres as the foreign minister of the Jewish people, David has been a force in American Jewish life for decades. In 1987, he planned the Freedom Sunday rally for Soviet Jews, which drew over 250,000 participants to the National Mall in Washington, D.C., demanding that Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev let Jews emigrate from the USSR. Since 1990, David has been CEO of AJC, and in that role, he has traveled the world, serving as the chief advocate and diplomat on behalf of world Jewry. He has devoted his life to promoting Israel's place in the world, to combating anti-Semitism, and to standing up for pluralism and democratic values all across the globe. David, so glad to have you here in person. It's a pleasure, Sefi. Thank you. You just got back from Israel, where you met with Prime Minister Netanyahu. What is the state of the Jewish state on its 70th birthday? Yes, I got back actually this morning, so forgive me if I'm a bit jet lagged. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think the state of the state is actually quite impressive. It's easy enough for some to focus on the challenges and the shortcomings, but it also provides an occasion, I think, to sort of step back and see the larger picture of how far Israel has come in, in seven decades. And to me, it's a breathtaking story. Uh, yes, we met with Prime Minister Netanyahu privately for an hour, and then we met with the defense minister, Avigdor Lieberman, and others. Look, they have a lot of immediate challenges on their mind, most especially security challenges in the north, uh, Iran and Syria. Uh, in the south, uh, Hamas and its friends in Iran and elsewhere, but overall a remarkably pulsating, resilient country. And I'm not sure that people outside of Israel fully appreciate the fact that notwithstanding all of those threats and challenges, the country is doing incredibly well. Now, you were there as an American Jewish leader, and I think the relationship between American Jews and Israel is one that's always worth exploring. David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister, appointed an American Jew, Mickey Marcus, to be the first general of the modern Israeli army. Golda Meir spent 15 formative years growing up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Israel's ambassador in Washington today, Ron Dermer, grew up an American Jew, the son of the mayor of Miami Beach. American Jews have played such an important role in Israel's history and its present. What is our place in Israel's future? By the way, I think you can add to that list, among others, Benjamin Netanyahu, who spent a good chunk of his um, years growing up in the States, in Philadelphia, in fact, in high school, uh, and then in college and graduate school, um, again, here in the States. So the American influence 
you're right, is heavy and has been for the last 70 years. Uh, and I hope it will continue to be um, equally um, contributory to Israel. Uh, at the same time, I think we have to recognize that there are not just challenges, but there are gaps. And maybe the most illustrative one for me, Sefi, right now is uh, we were there for the beginning of Yom Hazikaron. Now, this is a day that I think many American Jews are not even aware of. These are two Hebrew words that to many may not even be intelligible in English. But not only is Yom Hazikaron uh, the day of remembrance for the fallen soldiers and the victims of terrorism, but it, it was obvious to us, again, being on the ground, that this is a, a sacred day. I mean, this is very much the same kind of day for Israelis, I might say, as Yom Kippur or Yom HaShoah, mm -hmm. the day of Holocaust remembrance. And I, I mention this specifically because it occurred to me that while Israel comes to a complete halt, literally for a minute or two, um, when the sirens blare, but for 24 hours, people go into deep mourning. There is not an Israeli family that hasn't been touched um, by the victims of the wars and the terror attacks. And yet for American Jews, I think, for many at least, I, I can't generalize, it's, another, it's a day like any other day. And I think if one wants to understand the gap, the real gap, the psychological gap between American Jews and Israel, it may come around the meaning of Yom HaZikaron. So, uh, I, here's to many more years of American contributions to Israel in a thousand ways. But at the same time, we have to recognize that on some important issues, we're in two different places. When you look in your crystal ball, David, what does the future of Israeli and Jewish diaspora leadership look like? What steps must each side take to move from those different places to ensure an unbreakable bond? Well, when I look at my crystal ball, for example, regarding the stock market, it's usually a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I want to be careful about uh, entering the world of prophecy. But I, I think that when one looks at this large issue of these two vast communities, uh, the two pillars of Jewry around the world, uh, the relationship between them is essential to the future of the Jewish people. And if you break it down, there are probably two basic uh, future-oriented scenarios. One, a fairly optimistic, robust scenario of two communities that, uh, that remain tied together, that depend on each other, that draw strength from each other. And uh, a second scenario, which is a bit darker, in which the two communities drift apart and the gulf becomes still wider. Uh, from my point of view, and I'll speak very personally, uh, we have a profound stake in the outcome of, of this issue. We're not simply observers at AJC. We're very much in the first camp. We're in the camp that says, look, we are five, 6,000 miles apart. We do have um, vastly different daily experiences. Parents of 18-year-olds in America are focused on which colleges their kids are going to go to. And parents of 18-year-olds in Israel are focused very much on which military units their kids are going to go to. So there are real differences. But for those of us who believe in the unity of the Jewish people, the strength of the Jewish people, both the excitement of Jewish sovereignty in Israel and the validity of the diaspora, we at AJC have a stake in trying to help ensure that the next 70 years bring us closer together um, and not allow uh, the doomsday prophets to prevail in watching us drift further and further apart. David, I want to stay on those 18-year-olds for a moment because I know how important uh, young people are to you. Uh, young American Jews, college students, high schoolers have never known an Israel in peril. 
And they've also never seen Israel make major concessions for peace. They don't remember the 2005 withdrawal from Gaza, for example. They also feel particularly at home in America. The idea of needing Israel as refuge or safe harbor is completely foreign to them. How do we engage them as advocates for Israel without an existential threat to galvanize them and without a push for peace to inspire them? I mean, it's a great question. It's probably the $64,000 question. I go even further uh, and say that uh, unless someone was, um, at least in his teens or her teens, in 1967, at the time of the Six-Day War, the likelihood of understanding how Israel came into its current position, wh- why it is um, in the West Bank, why it is in eastern Jerusalem, why the Golan Heights are in Israeli hands, may or may not even be uh, understandable. So we're starting from a point of people who are under the age of, let's say, 65, before we even get to the 18-year-old Sefi, of people who, who never knew in Israel without the current situation that we see on the ground day in and day out. And it's much harder, especially in a world that sort of blithely ignores history generally. We've become a largely ahistorical world to begin with, to try and take people back to 1967 and help them understand the circumstances in which a smaller Israel was faced with an existential threat, with blood-curdling announcements from Damascus and Cairo saying, we will annihilate uh, Israel. Uh, It will cease to exist. It becomes very hard to explain the situation. That said, at AJC, we've learned um, from many years of experience, the best way to answer your question is for people to see Israel for themselves. And there are lots of other ways. We can all talk about social media. We can talk about all kinds of programming in the U.S. But the best way is for people to actually make the trip. And this is where I think that Project Birthright um, uh, was, was really an idea of genius in the sense that, look, a lot of these young people could, if they wished, go to Israel on their own. It's not always a question of the means to get there, but sometimes they need an incentive. And and Birthright has come along and said to hundreds of thousands of of young Jews, you may not have been to Israel. We're willing to take you to Israel. Don't let cost be a factor. So one, one, one response is people have to go to Israel and see it for themselves. It's not a surefire guarantee that everyone will fall in love with Israel, but at the very least, they will see, as others have seen, Israel is a far more robust and complex country than sometimes the simplified versions of it uh, as presented in the U.S. uh, may appear. And the second thing, Sefi, is, look, I'm a great believer that Jewish identity begins in the home. There are lots of other potential intervening forces, but there is no substitute for the home. And the home can't begin at the age of 18. It has to begin at the age of, of, of 18 days or, <laughs> or 18 months. Um, and people who have a strong Jewish identity, who grow up in a home that exudes pride and engagement with, with Jewish issues, Jewish identity questions, will be more likely to understand that our identity as a people depends on, on a three-legged, if you will, stool a faith, a land, and a people. What's the land? What's the land? But if you grow up in a home where there, there is no substantive Jewish identity, which is reinforced by Jewish education or Jewish camping or Jewish conversations, then understanding the notion of a faith, a people, much less a land, becomes an abstraction. Um, and and then people are not ready when the debates begin, when they enter college and, and they're confronted with issues on campus about Israel allegedly being this or that. Rather than being able to respond, 
too often they duck it. They go missing in action for years perhaps or heaven forbid, they, they, they sort of embrace the Stockholm Syndrome and become part of the assault on Israel without any of the knowledge or facts. This is why the home and seeing Israel f- for themselves, I think, are the two key strategies. David, as you know, I spend so much of my time here at AJC engaged in work with young people, with high schoolers, with college students. Um, and so often I'll be speaking with their parents or their grandparents uh, or older folks who are concerned about the state of young American Jews in general. And they'll say, you know, why aren't American Jews standing up on campus? They need to do more for Israel. And to put myself in in those young American Jews' shoes for a moment, uh, you know, it's reasonable almost for them to turn around and say, why now? Hockey practice always came before Hebrew school when I was growing up. Why now that I've turned 18, that I've gotten to campus, am I suddenly supposed to be an Israel advocate? I think that that is uh, that you've put your finger really on on a challenge that that it's uh, even just those Jewish dinner table conversations can be something that can that can drive that that sense of identity. And actually, your comment, and this is totally unscripted for the listeners, <laughs> uh, resonates because two of our sons were avid hockey players, <laughs> and they played starting in kindergarten or first grade, and they played through the end of high school, and we went to hundreds, if not thousands, of games where they played in Canada, in the U.S., you name it. But you can live with both ice hockey and Jewish identity, <laughs> and, and I'm living proof that you don't have to choose between the two. And in all those long, long car rides at ridiculous hours of the early morning or late night going to and from hockey games, you know, you can talk about things other than hockey. And I'd like to think that our children have grown up with a very strong sense of Jewish identity, which is linked as well to a strong sense of Israel as an essential component of Jewish identity. Our kids have spent a lot of time in Israel. Indeed, one of our children married an Israeli. Uh, Another of our children spent five years uh, in graduate school and medical school in Israel. A third uh, does business in Israel. They have very strong sense of the Israel piece of Jewish identity as essential to their broader self-definition. And as parents, we're very proud of that. And we now have our, uh, our first grandchild, who is, in fact, to this point, both Israeli and American. Well, to stick with the sports for just a moment. With uh, pleasure. <laughs> it's, it's often felt throughout the past 70 years that Israel and AJC speaking up for Israel were playing from behind. Uh, it felt almost as though the whole world was arrayed against us. We had to fight just to get the United Nations to acknowledge that Jewish self-determination wasn't racist. Now, Israel isn't nearly the diplomatic underdog that it once was. You meet regularly with world leaders in a tireless effort to improve Israel's place in the world. What do you hear from them about Israel today? What is the future of our global advocacy on Israel's behalf? I'm here to say that from our perspective at AJC, and and we engage on a regular basis with about 115 countries on every continent Um, annually, at least. And notwithstanding some of the challenges, the fact of the matter is that we believe and we have said publicly in the last couple of years that Israel's global diplomatic standing has never been higher. Now, let me explain what that is and what it's not. What it's not is a sudden sort of shift in the thinking of many governments about some Israeli policies. Uh, They still may not like certain Israeli policies. They still may vote at the United Nations in a way that we wish they wouldn't. 
Uh, We haven't seen that kind of dramatic change there. But what they have done is compartmentalized. And the most important shift in recent years is a recognition, which is actually a part of HAC's diplomatic strategy to get ahead of the curve, not behind, ahead of the curve, Sefi, and to to help nations understand that Israel is part of the solution to the major problems of the 21st century. And one by one, you see countries around the world waking up and time permitting, I could cite for you literally, literally dozens, if not hundreds of examples of countries that wake up and say, wait a second, we've got a problem with water management. We're running out of water. There are threats of water wars in the 21st century. Wait a second, we're not raising enough food for our growing population and, and the consequences of environmental destruction. Wait a second, cybersecurity has become an essential element of any nation's defense, as we see banks and, and electrical grids penetrated by cyber hackers. How do we get solutions to cybersecurity? Wait a second, our airports are vulnerable. How do we strengthen airport security? Uh, wait a second, we're suffering from terror attacks ourselves. How do we develop new counterterrorism strategies and, and how do we strengthen our own population through national resilience efforts? Keep going down the list and, and you come to innovation and entrepreneurship and how a country of 8 million people can become a member of the OECD, that elite club of the most industrialized nations in the world with either the second or third highest number of listings on NASDAQ uh, and with a remarkable record of human capital development. And Countries are lining up. We see it again and again, Sefi. We see countries asking us at AJC, hey, can you help us? Because there are so many people in front of us online (laughs) trying to talk to Israelis about all of these things and learn from them and buy from them and partner with them and invest in them. So in that respect, Israel is pretty much off the charts. So we're very concerned about UN voting. I mean, AJC is, is out there day in and day out on those issues. Lots of nations that in our, in our mind are hypocritical, uh, willing to ignore the facts. But at the same time, we should never lose sight of the other fact, which is that Israel is in a very a prominent, if not powerful position in the world today, diplomatically and economically and technologically, and more and more countries realize it and want a part of it. Does Israel face any existential threats? Absolutely. Uh, at the same time, it's, it's one of these sort of strange juxtapositions where Israel is becoming the poster child of a first world, um, edgy, cutting edge, innovative country that's figuring out how blind people can see, literally, and how paralyzed people can walk, literally, on the one hand, and on the other hand, from Iran, from Syria, from Hezbollah, from Hamas, they're facing, if you will, almost medieval threats of annihilation. Um, and having just been in Israel for the last 72 hours, we were reminded of this again. You, you have Assad in Syria using chemical weapons, not for the first time against his own people. You have Iran building military bases and establishing a permanent presence in Syria. You have Hezbollah with literally tens of thousands of rockets and missiles in Lebanon pointed at Israel. And you have Hamas, whose charter explicitly calls for the annihilation of Israel, provoking on the southern border. So you have this remarkable technological nation on the one hand looking for cures for cancer and for the other ailments of the world, and on the other hand, having to battle people who 
who simply cannot accept either the presence of Israel as a nation or the Jewish people as a sovereign people in the region and are trying to destroy them. So the threats are real. David, throughout Israel's history, and even its prehistory, even before the Jewish state came into being, it has meant so many things to so many people and and often different and divergent things. What is the meaning of Israel today in 2018 in, in this moment? My long answer, Sefi, is actually contained in, a, in a, an essay I wrote called um, Israel at 70, which is now available, I think, in 16 languages, by the way, including English, <laughs> uh, and uh, at the AJC website, ajc.org, uh, for anyone who would like to read the longer piece. But in brief, uh, I think it's, it's a wondrous story. It's a remarkable story. And again, um, as I said earlier, I hope that people will sort of step back from the daily flow of information and and realize uh, the magnitude of this story of a people thousands of years old whose whole identity is bound up with a land, a small sliver of land, and who have never, ever, ever, not in exile, not through persecution, not in the ghettos, um, not in in the death camps, never lost sight of the land and its centrality to to their identity, to the metaphysical meaning of what it means to be a Jew. And the fact that the Jews were able to return and to reestablish sovereignty and to become a majority people and to take our own future and destiny into our hands, whereas for centuries we had lived as a minority subject to the, quote, goodwill, unquote, of the majority, and too often, as we know, the good was absent from the will. Uh, and, and now to witness this rebirth of the experiment in Jewish sovereignty uh, is, to me, absolutely breathtaking. And to see what the Jews have accomplished uh, in Israel against all the odds, uh, against nations that wanted to destroy it and tried, uh, against a, 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 a nation whose topography was forbidding and unyielding, um, Uh, without any natural resources to speak of, uh, in a nation which tried to weave together Jewish communities from all over the world that were as different as day and night when it came to language and self-identity and observance and and so many other things. I mean, they couldn't even agree on whether rice should or should not be eaten during Passover, much less a hundred, a thousand other issues. To me, whatever the shortcomings of Israel may be, and, and believe me, like every nation, including every great nation on earth, there are shortcomings. Um, but the fact of the matter is, it's a remarkable story. And I only hope and pray that both Jews and non-Jews around the world will step back for just a moment and look at this larger sort of sweep of history um, and, like me, marvel at what has been accomplished. David, our final question for you is the same one we've been asking all of our guests today, and it is, what is your birthday wish for Israel? In a word, peace. Uh, In two words, enduring peace. Uh, Peace is possible. Uh, Anwar Sadat of Egypt, King Hussein of Jordan, helped remind us that peace is possible. Uh, In today's Middle East, there are Arab nations deeply engaged with Israel, reevaluating their whole assessment of Israel. So peace is not just a pipe dream, Sefi. It's possible. The central question, though, is whether the Palestinians, having missed, we think, up to 10 different opportunities to make peace based on a two-state agreement, 
will finally have the leadership that says, we'd rather make peace with Israel than war with Israel. And if so, I have no doubt that the people of Israel will embrace that outstretched hand uh, and make what has to be the enduring peace and allow the Middle East to begin to develop its full potential. That's my birthday wish. That's my daily wish in this year and every year. Thank you so much for joining us, David. My pleasure, Sefi. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Singing. Good for the Jews? Last week, 12,000 Israelis, including President Ruven Rivlin and Tel Aviv Mayor Ron Khuldai, gathered in a stadium in Tel Aviv for Kululam. The project, which has been described as a campfire, updated for the 21st century, brings together Israelis from all walks of life, young and old, Ashkenazi and Mizrahi, religious and secular, to join together in making beautiful music. Together they sang a song by Naomi Shemer, one of the foremost songwriters in Israeli history. The product is stunning, and you can listen to the song in full after our credits. The lyrics of Al Kol Ele beseech God to watch over the bee's honey and its sting, over bitterness and sweetness, over burning fire and clear water. What better encapsulation of Israel than this song acknowledging life's complexities, its ups and its downs? And who better to sing it than this broad cross-section of society, Israel in all of its diversity? More things to unite us, more common touchstones, more ways to celebrate life together as Israel soars into its 71st year. That truly would be good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is Scott Reitherman. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.
על הדבש ועל העוקץ, על המר ועל הטוב, על בלתנו מהדינוקת, שמור הימים,